From Neon Hum Media, this is Dirt Cheap. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. We're reading Murder in the Glass Room, a Bantam book by Edmund Rolfe and Lester Fuller. We're a chapter and a half away from finishing the book. Right. We are getting to the bitter end of it. I feel so far away from knowing the answer. Yeah. Of who killed Edna. And it is not many pages (laughs) away. You had, you remind me again of your pick. You had Murdoch. Yeah, I had Murdoch. You got Murdoch? I had my money on Murdoch. You got your money on Murdoch. It would absolutely be the funniest because he just saved Phil's life. Right. So it would be really (laughs) funny if it turned out that he he taketh life. He giveth life (laughs) to Phil, but he taketh life from Edna. Yeah, listen, it doesn't make sense, but the book doesn't make sense. So I'm like, I'm good with it. Absolutely. Amanda, do you remember what happened in in the first half of chapter 16? Okay, so chapter 16 was a frightmare. I remember the meat of that first half of the chapter, but how did we get He in? walks in. Yeah, he just walks in, he right? Walks Off the street. to this Veterans United rally. Yeah, he had the flyer, and right. so he just like walked there. He just goes in, and nobody... It stops him right. and he goes and sits down and he walks in and he watches a Trump rally yeah. and he watches a guy get beat up. And that leads us to the spine-tingling conclusion of chapter 16. The heavy soundproofed auditorium doors shut out all sound of the riot inside. The lobby itself was empty, except for a couple of cops who were chewing the rag with the Oracle ticket takers, and two others who sat on stools next to the soda drink bar, sipping Cokes out of cone-like paper cups. I started walking off to the right. At the end of the lobby, there was a long, narrow hall, dimly lighted, leading down the side of the auditorium. I moved along it slowly and saw that it ended with a large metal fire door. I pushed against it. It gave slightly. I felt the damp air on my face from the narrow alley that ran the length of the building. I let the door close again. There was another, smaller door at right angles to the fire door. It was marked private. I listened for a moment outside it. There was a sliver of light shining from under the threshold, but there was no sound. Then I got my bright idea. Judging from the position of the door in relation to the hall and to the alley and back, this room had to look out on the alley. That is, if there was any window, it had to, if it wasn't just a closet-like cubbyhole, like many backstage dressing rooms. Oh, man, we're spending a lot of time (laughs) describing doors and alleys and hallways. I know. It's super exciting. From what we just witnessed to this, (laughs) this is such such strange writing. Yeah, it's like I watched a man get beaten up in front of me. Then I went to this door on the left. Then I went to that door on the right. There was a vending machine. I looked at the vending machine. There were some Pringles. It didn't look like a dressing room to me. It looked more like the entrance to a conference room, a place where the manager sits around and yawns till the show is over or where the box office money is counted. I slipped out into the alley. 
To the left was a stage door, a red light hanging over it. On the right, a light shone from a window. The window was slightly open. I'd figured it right. I kept watching both ends of the alley. So far, luck was with me. Nobody in sight. Then I measured the height of the window ledge, about eight feet. I bent down, took a deep breath, and jumped. It was easy, and I was sure I'd done it noiselessly. Oh my god, he did it the loudest. Uh, <laughs> There's no way everyone didn't hear it. Also, like, he measured it, like, with what? <laughs> what, does he have, like, a tape measure in his pocket? Yeah, every bookie keeps a tape measure on them. Absolutely. You know that. <laughs> my fingers gripped the stone ledge firmly. Then, slowly, I chinned myself higher and higher and higher until I caught a quick, full glimpse of the inside of the room. I eased myself quickly down again, but I hung onto the ledge with my fingers. Stanley and Thayer were in there, and they were talking. Their voices weren't very loud, but I heard them distinctly. Thayer, looking hurt, was protesting the beating up of the young man in the audience. Stay around, Stanley said to him. You'll see more of the same, only bigger and better. You mean, Thayer interrupted nervously, that you've done this sort of thing before? It's against our explicit understanding. I told you I would have nothing to do with violence. Stanley smiled at him and said, you're talking like a minister, Thayer. I don't care what I talk like, I won't have it. Thayer's voice was frightened, weak. When you got me into this, you said everything would be safe and legal, but that's not the way it's turning out. First, you had me make that plane trip to Washington so you could avoid being questioned by the police. And now you're beating people up? It was my money that started this organization. And the next thing I know, you'll be burning down the White House. No, Stanley said. We'll be in the White House. <laughs> well, we'll be in the White House. And Listen. the prestige. <laughs> Listen, give, um, give or take 70 years, yes, Stanley's plan works. We'll be in the White House yeah. with, with our uh, Viking costumes and our uh, face paint and our pro-Veterans United flags. And we'll take over the building. We'll crawl onto the building. We're going to be all over that White House. Uh, we're going to scale the walls. Mm -hmm. We're gonna break the windows. Ooh, yeah. Gonna you put see. my feet up on Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> desk. So what's being described here, uh, Thayer took the plane trip, so we knew that, yeah, we that, knew yeah. that there was some shadiness there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> this whole thing is so funny that it was so easy for me to like almost forget the very important clue. And now we know for sure right. that, 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 uh, Stanley was in Los Angeles during Edna's murder. We now know that for sure. I'd heard enough. I let go and landed easily on my toes. So Shelley's hunch had been right. Stanley hadn't gone to Washington. I realized that the mere fact that his alibi had exploded wasn't enough evidence to convict him. But for me, that was enough. I was no 12-man impartial jury, considering the evidence objectively, worrying about the admissibility of hearsay, or about whether there was an actual witness to the crime. 
I wasn't objective about anything anymore. As far as I was concerned, he was guilty of everything in the book. Yeah. Fills the judge, jury, and executioner. He can't be objective anymore. <laughs> he has been so objective this whole time. Paragon of impartiality. <laughs> oh, my God. This is very funny. Yeah. This is extremely funny. <laughs> He's going to Wolverine <laughs> this shit. <laughs> I tried to get back into the auditorium through the fire door, but the lock had clicked tight. There was no other way except to go around the back and into the main entrance, and that would mean facing the same gang of goons again. Gang of goons! Gang of goons! The only thing I could do was wait, in a spot where I could keep an eye on the little backstage room and on Stanley, where he'd be likely to leave the auditorium when the meeting was over. The best place was just where I was, in the alley. I crouched under an overhang of the opposite wall to keep out of sight. My sentry box was uncomfortable and cold. After what seemed like hours, the stage door opened. I heard loud voices, laughing and joking. In the darkness, I couldn't see who the men were, so I squinted after them until they reached the light at the entrance of the alley. There, I made them out clearly. They were the musicians, carrying their instrument cases under their arms. The meeting was over. They were hardly out of the alley when the door opened again. This time it was a single, unfamiliar figure. I watched him until he was out of sight. Soon they began to pour out of the stage door. Men, women, groups of uniformed goons, stage hands. They flowed out into the alley in an almost incessant stream. I began to be able to see them better through the darkness. People left singly, in pairs, and groups but still no Stanley. Then, for a long time, the alley was quiet. I waited, hoping to hell I hadn't missed him. When I'd almost given up, when I'd almost convinced myself that he had probably gone out the front way, the door opened again. It was a large group this time. I counted eight figures, and one of them was tall and thin enough to be Stanley. Some of the voices sounded familiar too. I followed them cautiously as they approached the street back of the auditorium. The light from a street lamp revealed Stanley and Thayer and Tommy and five others whom I didn't know. I watched them while they hurried up the street, huddled against the rain, and entered the bar and grill halfway up the block. They're going to the fascism bar and grill. Oh, okay, dude. <laughs> uh, sounds good. Um, so they're going to get the... Um... America first jalapeno poppers. Absolutely. And uh Yeah, the the, the, the Mexico didn't invent these the, jalapeno the, poppers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um the Chinese Exclusion Act like wonton salad. <laughs> right. Um <laughs> Yeah, you know, good real good stuff. As soon as the door closed behind them, I hid in the entrance of a closed dry goods door right next door. Then, looking up, I remembered that Shelley's car was parked in the lot across the way, almost directly opposite the bar and grill. I ran across and sat in the car while the minutes went by. Stanley could have polished off a dozen drinks in all that time. What in the hell were they doing? At last, the door opened and the gang of them emerged. All eight of them were there. They gave off with the usual farewells, and after a few seconds broke up. The five I didn't know walked south along the street leaving Stanley, Thayer, and Tommy together. 
They stood grouped at the sidewalk, talking. Tommy kept waving at taxicabs until finally an empty rolled up to the curb, and all three of them piled in. This Ugh. is so boring. Yeah, this is really boring. I like Ugh. we don't need to just follow them. Like, yeah, of course, they you know, you get pooped. You get a little tuckered out after shouting the N-word <laughs> for an hour. So you, yeah, you're gonna need to refuel. Yeah, yeah you're gonna need a ride back. That's okay. What they need to do. <laughs> I think what they're trying to do is build up tension yeah. for the meeting between the two of them. And I think what they're actually doing yes. is boring me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the minute the cab started, I turned the key in the ignition and started my motor. I didn't turn on my lights. I followed them through Hollywood to Beverly Hills, staying about a block behind them most of the way. Once the taxi stopped, I stopped too. Thayer got out and disappeared into a big apartment house. That left two. It was still one too many. The cab started rolling again, and I went after them. After miles of dark streets, they pulled up in front of the canopy of a five-story apartment house. I drove past until I reached the end of the block and pulled up against the curb. Through my rearview mirror, I saw both Stanley and Tommy get out. Stanley paid the hacky, and then the taxi moved on. Tommy lifted his hand, waved goodnight, and walked down the street. As he passed me, he turned to look into the car, but in the dark he couldn't have recognized me because he went on and turned off at the corner. Stanley had disappeared into the house. He was alone now. But where did he live? In what apartment? And how could I get in? I slipped out of the car and stared up at the building. While I stood there, lights went on in two of the windows up on the fourth floor. They were the fourth and fifth windows to the left of the entrance. Now I knew where I stood, at least geographically. Nobody else had gone into the building, so this must have been Stanley's apartment. I didn't waste any time figuring out elaborate schemes for getting in. I'm just imagining like a beautiful mind, like all of like the, the plans floating <laughs> next to his head. It's like, you know, go into door, go upstairs. Yes. But then he also has like a, to the left of him, he's like scale wall, <laughs> crash through window. It's like all these different brilliant ideas that he has for getting in. Yeah. Be right back. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I'd bull my way past the attendants if necessary. There was no need for rough stuff. There was no attendant. The elevator was the self-service kind. When I got out on the fourth floor, I tried to collate the doors to the left with the windows where I'd seen the lights go on, but I couldn't. 
There was no way I could be sure, because there were two doors to the left of the elevator. One of them must have been Stanley's apartment. But which one? I decided to take a chance on the first door. If a stranger answered, I'd have to get out of it as well as I could. It'd be bad, of course. I didn't want anybody to see me there, but it had to be risked. I pressed the bell button, rehearsing a speech of apology just in case. And then I waited. There was no sound from within as I punched the bell again. Just as I was about to give up and go to the next apartment, the door opened wide. I found myself face to face with Stanley. Wow, it's happening. It's happening, baby. Showdown. The two greats, one on one. This is the like mano a mano. This is the most like banal like way. Like I'm just a mad. It was just so slow. It wasn't like uh, it it wasn't described like you know like he was swatting you know like he was being really sneaky and cool. Right. He's just like I just rang rang the doorbell and actually rehearsed an apology (laughs) in case it wasn't (laughs) Professor Stanley the person he wanted to murder, Uh. which I think is. An interesting thought for someone who has never thought of others. Yes. <laughs> this is the, a weird this is a weird time. <laughs> this is a man who barged into a woman's apartment in the middle of the night yeah. without any second thought. Is like rehearsing an apology speech for, for ringing a doorbell. For ringing a doorbell. Pretty great. <laughs> I yeah, it's just weird. He's I don't a know. Ball of contradiction. Yeah, I feel like at this point, like an assistant is maybe finishing the story or something. <laughs> it just—it's so much blander now for yeah. some reason. Yeah, the Kool Aid has been watered down a bit. I mean, a those, little bit. Yeah, those uh, like the scenes where he's like in an alley, like chasing after Willie. Like he's got some vim. Yeah, and those, are, those to are described him. pretty fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not this. This is like I hung around. <laughs> I waited, I watched, a guy got out, then another guy, then it was Stanley. Unexpectedly, he smiled. Come in, he said jovially. Come in, my dear fellow. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Explorers Club. (laughs) (laughs) Let me show you my collection of rhino heads. Yeah. From the deepest darkest jungles of Africa. Professor Stanley sounds like Anglo Carlos now, because he's just like, come on in, my good fellow. Ah, hello. I moved cautiously past him toward a smallish, unpretentious living room. He closed the door behind us and then went past me, saying, I won't say I was really prepared for your visit, but it doesn't surprise me. I'd rather expected you to find some, shall I say, melodramatic way of reaching me. He crossed over to a large, heavy oak table on which a tray was set up for drinks. Apparently, he was expecting visitors because there were three tall glasses, a bucket of ice, a siphon bottle, and a couple of quarts of whiskey. That complicated matters. I'd have to do it fast. Stanley waved towards the tray. Drink? No. Don't mind if I have one alone, do you? He reached for a glass and poured himself a stiff jolt not bothering about the ice or soda. Did you like our little meeting? He asked after a swallow. Too bad that you had to leave so early. 
Did you like his little meeting? Oh, we loved his little meeting. <laughs> we loved it, Professor Stanley. Your little meeting. <laughs> little meeting was so much fun. Yeah. Ooh, booy. Oh, yeah. We're, we're just like riling people up to go out and lynch people. That's how, Yeah, it was real fun. I was sweaty after reading that <laughs> So chapter. sweaty. We both had to take a shower. Ugh. Unclean. <laughs> I didn't answer. Of course, they're a little crude yet. Not at all like the plans I have for them. But then we're young. Watch us next year. The pageantry, the sheer drama, will take your breath away. We'll have red hats with a fun slogan on them. Did I mention we're going to break into the Capitol? Do a terrorist attack? It's going to be so breathtaking and awe-inspiring. But there wasn't going to be any next year for Stanley. However, he continued blandly, this small talk, which could be quite charming, isn't the reason for your visit, is it? You have something to say to me, haven't you? Yeah, I said. Let's talk about the fudge sundays at the farmer's market, or maybe a tall blonde kid in a house on a lake. Stanley glared at me. Then he went over to a side table, took a cigarette from a gold-tooled leather box, and reached inside his coat pocket for a lighter. When his hand reappeared, there was a small automatic in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that. yeah, that tracks. Oh, I love this. Uh, I love I how love... all of the, this this climax is happening in this sort of slow moving. I feel like I'm watching this in slow motion. Yeah. I also love that. Like, he's like trying to Columbo out right now. Yes. <laughs> but like a big difference is that like Columbo would have like a bunch of evidence and right. clues and, that he solved. He's very like attentive and perceptive. When he says just one thing. Just one more thing. He's going to present some detective stuff that blows your mind. Right. It's no spoiler that Phil is unable to do that. He's just like, let's talk about the farmer's market, which I'm accusing you of having placed a bomb in without any evidence. Let's talk about a thing from your past that we've already discussed. It's like, Yeah, exactly. It's he, like, no, let's get to the, the meat here. Yeah. Let's uh, yeah. do this. All right, his voice had changed. What's on your mind? I told him to put the thing away. You're acting as if it was in your hand, Stanley said. I kept my voice low. Put it away. You're not going to use it. Even if you claim self-defense, you couldn't stand the publicity. You're too vulnerable, Harley. Stanley shivered. A cheek muscle twitched nervously. Then he put the pistol back into his pocket. Wow, it worked. Harley. Harley is his Achilles heel, his former identity. He's trying to outrun his past. Just in case I do decide to take a chance on the notoriety. You didn't go to Washington, I said. What if I didn't? You were in LA the night Edna was killed. So were you. There were a lot of other people. 1,700,000 was the latest census count, I think. 
though, man. <laughs> there so are a lot cute. of people in Los Angeles, <laughs> I last heard. Mm, any of them could be the murderer. <laughs> there's no way to <laughs> there's no way to boil it down. Everyone knows that's how the police solve these things. That's they right. look at the entire population <laughs> and narrow it down from there. <laughs> Stanley, you are stretching this thing out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like this is just another one of those things that villains say when it's just like <laughs> I mean, I'm cute, aren't I? We know it's the '40s, and these are white dudes doing crimes. None of them are paying for them, right? <laughs> like, I mean, if Phil Norris can like bribe an officer and have that help him, like Professor Stanley should have like every officer, right? I mean, he should. I mean, by 2020 standards. Every police officer should be like a member of Veterans United. I mean, yeah, they they are right, <laughs> yeah. and there were a bunch of them standing around the, the auditorium. So yeah, maybe they are. Um, so yeah, he'll be fine, as you say. Yeah. You tried to kill Shelley. I don't know what you're talking about. No, you don't know about anything, do you? You probably haven't even heard about the farmers market this afternoon. God, that was earlier this afternoon. Yeah, I know. Well, in- it feels so long ago. Well, cause we because read of, it we're reading weeks these ago, things. right? Yeah, but you know, <laughs> I had to remember. <laughs> Stanley still tried to be as smooth as baby oil. I'm sure the police are far more adept at tracking down criminals than you are, although you are a rather animated example of their stupidity. I had to hold myself back from smacking him right then. Talk, I said. Talk, talk. (laughs) (laughs) Talk, 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 talk. If I'm Professor Stanley, I'll tell you the one thing I'm not doing is talking. Right. Why? Why would you talk? You have a gun and you have people coming over. And it's your home. And it's your home. No reason to talk. He doesn't have anything on him. No. No reason to talk. No reason to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Talk, I said. Talk, talk. This is one time it won't get you to the head of the table. You're in a vice. I could throw your hatchet man to the cops. They'd make him spill. His kind squeezes easier than a tube of toothpaste. Just the thought of the guy in the white linen suit brought the pain surging back in my kidney. I had almost forgotten about the beating, but now the agony came back inside me. Stanley smiled nervously. You can't prove a thing. But I don't want it that way, I said. I want it out of you. If it has to come out of your pores. I took a step toward him. This is going to be a pleasure. Stay away. His voice was loud and jerky. The realization came over me suddenly. You're scared, I said, and moved closer. You've always been afraid. I bet you even lock your bedroom door against yourself. You're feeding on your own nerves, I laughed. (laughs) It takes one to know one. Yeah, A, it takes one to know one. And also B, again, with like what evidence. Like, I mean, I guess he's just scared in that moment. Well, he just, but like, once, once Stanley started yielding and going, like, going into defensive mode, Phil got excited and right. now he's confident. Right. Which, oh boy. I mean, <laughs> we, yeah, I guess if we I We love had... what he does when he's confident. Absolutely. Be right back. 
Stanley drew back almost imperceptibly. Stay away, he repeated. But I was very close to him now. Deliberately, I slammed his face with my open palm. That's for Edna, I said. Immediately, Stanley's face changed. Suddenly, shockingly, all his suavity and self-assurance dropped away. Is it a shock? No. Is it a shock that when you assault someone that they would suddenly be less cool and confident? (laughs) Is that like a big surprise, Phil? (laughs) Yeah, I think like what what the writers are trying to do is do the dressing down of the villain moment, but it's not convincing. It's just not like fully earned. It's not convincing because Phil didn't do the work. No. Because all Phil's doing is just beating up on a guy who he suspects has, uh, you know, killed his wife. Right. Like, yeah, like, yeah, he's it's obviously good to hit a, a bad dude. Like, it's good to hit a Nazi. Yes, agreed, 100%. But, like... That's not why he's hitting him, eh? That's not why he's hitting him <laughs> at all. Like, it's so... So, you know, I... So if he's, if he's doing this for Edna, well, he hasn't really gotten revenge for Edna because for all he knows, Stanley's innocent. He doesn't have, he doesn't know that that, that Stanley killed her. Uh, yeah, you were exactly right. So, we do not fucking know for sure yet. So that's why this moment, I think, I agree with you. It rings false. Yep. The, a good dressing down of the villain comes when you've got the upper hand on him. Yeah, because and you've you finally take the cloak out, off and it's right. the old guy who says, you know, yeah. or for you meddling kids. Yeah. Exactly. You've outsmarted him. This guy's just going over to his he house and beating him up. He went to his apartment, he went in voluntarily, everything, yeah. you know. Oh, how about I start beating you up? <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, Stanley has a gun. Yeah, Stanley does have he, a gun. He could at the very least brandish it again. but Might uh, be a good idea. Yeah, I don't know. I, mm. I don't want to give a Nazi ideas. Exactly. But it's also Phil, so I don't care that much. Yeah, th- <laughs> this is a real uh, Gamera versus Mothra situation. <laughs> it's like neither of them are good. They're just destroying the city. <laughs> yeah, exactly. His eyes widened in fright and his mouth sagged. He began to cringe. It was like seeing a newsreel short of a Jap Zero exploding. One minute it was a frightening machine, and the next it was nothing. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. World War II, World baby. World War II metaphors. <sighs> Listen, he pleaded. You want an alibi? I'll give it to you. I'll give you more. I'll give you the murderer. I'll furnish the proof, the witnesses. I I can make it stick. Whom do you want? Tommy? Mino? Thayer? Again, I slapped him across the face. That's for Shelly. Look, he whispered hoarsely. I I don't want to pay for it. I I don't want your 50,000. You can have it free. And this one's for me. My fist landed solidly on his chin. He staggered back against the wall and slid to the floor, his lips bloody. I made no move toward him. I just stood there watching him. It's, it's like all of a sudden he got a bunch of Mario mushrooms and his punches right. are really hitting. He's fucking it's just Captain like America over here. All of a sudden. <laughs> right. I also like that he was like, and this one's for me, as if the first two weren't. For him. I mean, like he said they were all of these punches are for him. Shelly and Edna, but really, this is all just Phil being Phil. Now talk, I said. He looked up at me. There was a nutty look on his face. For a moment, I couldn't figure it, but then I realized 
He was laughing. I hit the ceiling, and burned by the expression on its face, I walked over to him, lifted him, and propped his sagging body against the wall. Then, deliberately, I smashed his face three times with my closed fist. Talk, I shouted. I don't think I cared whether he talked or not anymore. All I wanted to do was hit him. Yeah, I mean, this is just, he's just punching his father. I mean, this is all this is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the genie's out of the bottle now. He's just going to go, he's going to go stupid with rage and fuck this up somehow. (laughs) Where my head is going. (laughs) Stanley's head rolled as though it was unhinged. Then he managed to focus his eyes on me, but he didn't open his mouth. I grabbed him by the throat and dug my fingers deep into his flesh. He began to choke, but with an almost convulsive effort, he managed to gasp something out. You're doing this because Shelly's in love with me. I banged his head against the wall, but then he spoke again. I hardly heard him. That's why Edna hated her, he said. Shelly's my wife. It didn't hit me at all. It was as if I was expecting him to say just what he did. My fingers relaxed their grip, and he collapsed to the floor. For a moment, he sat slumped against the wall, breathing heavily. But then he weakly looked up at me with a crazy grin. She never told you that, he said, enjoying himself. Did she? Okay, so... You know, I mean, we we knew about... Shelley's relationship with the professor. Right. It's unclear to me right now if he's just like uh, lying a bit, overstating their connection. Yeah, could be. Or, yeah, I mean, like Shelley has all of this information on him, but it doesn't seem like she's currently hanging out with him. No, yeah, I mean, certainly not. Right. Um, the other thing is that, like, we're, the implication is that, like, Edna knew Shelly, which is something that... We were they just, ever in the same room together? Not that we have seen in the book. Right. That's something we... That is complete surprise, as far as I know, which is weird. It's a weird, it's it's a a weird, weird thing, thing to, to bring up now. Yeah. yeah. The two women characters knew each other. (laughs) You won't get, you'll never get to see two women talk to each other about anything, but you should know (laughs) off screen, off page. The shock is. They knew each other and they, their only relationship to each other was of (laughs) resentment over a man, Professor Stanley. That's right. The the great guy, the, the, the prophet, the cult leader. (laughs) I don't know why I believed him, but I did. Only a genius could have snatched that one out of the air, and Stanley was no Einstein. I felt sick, not only because Shelley had held out on me, but also because now I knew who'd killed Edna. Stanley cackled. The strings that held him together were gone. Don't <laughs> the, no. str- the strings? Hmm, that's a weird... Metaphor? The strings that held him together? He's not a puppet. He's the puppet master. Yeah. I don't know, dude. This is this is being written real fast. Again, uh, the printer is running. The, the strings of these sentences are <laughs> yeah. coming undone. Oh, this is all frayed and loose threads. The, the, the loose thread of plot that we have is frayed at this point. 
even if he got away with the responsibility for the farmer's market, and I was going to make sure that he didn't. He'd certainly wind up in the booby hatch. I turned around and headed for the door. Stanley was laughing his head off as I left the apartment. Oh boy, and that is chapter 16 of Murder in the Glassroom. Why did he leave? Okay, he believes he has the information he needed. Who killed Edna Norris? He now believes he knows who killed Edna. So he's leaving. Yeah. The apartment. Yeah, you know, I I don't think any of these decisions have been right, obviously. But this is also one where you're like, huh, okay. (laughs) Because Stanley could immediately get on the phone and be like, uh, you know, bring bring all the henchmen around. Let's go. Let's, yeah. Let's do. Yeah, let's, let's find him. Let's find him and kill him. Okay. Phil is leaving the apartment and he says, I know who did it. He knows who killed Edna Norris. Do we know who killed Edna Norris? I don't know. Uh, I am starting to think maybe Shelly. Okay. Um, but I also feel like based on her behavior, that would that doesn't make sense. So I still right. kind of want it to be Murdoch, even though that <laughs> does that also doesn't make sense. Um, but like it's it's weird. Um yeah. do we think I, I don't I, I will tell you this, um, because I read one chapter ahead. That's true. You all you are at this point at the end. You know yes. what happens. I don't think I, I was surprised by the ending. Interesting. Um, okay. I was surprised by who did it and why and how. Um it took me it took me by surprise. Interesting. Um, that's all I, I will say. Um but yeah, I, I agree with you what you said earlier. Like Phil is not a somebody who his hunches pay off. So uh so when he says I know who did it. Um, I'd be really suspect of that. Yeah, I'm not confident in him. Yeah, no. the other folks that might be interesting um, to look at, what's her name, Muriel? Muriel. You know, the childhood friend of Edna's. Yeah. Who, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget it, uh, when uh, she said, you know, once Edna started hanging out with upper crust people, and then stopped hanging out with her and then would like hang out with her in secret like she was a colored girl. Yes. So oh, was, yeah, I was like, oh, that was she's some certain, good shit. She certainly has a motive that we are that is clear that we understand. She feels she was owed money that she didn't get. Um Right, the money. Yeah, the money. Yeah, I, I uh it's interesting. This to is see. so tense in such a weird way because this <laughs> this second half of chapter 16 was such a like slowdown after the ramped up scary, you know, terror energy of the hate rally. So now we're like so close to finding out who did it, but it feels like I still need like eight more chapters. Yeah. <laughs> but there aren't. It's so this is I'm I am very much girding for the final uh bit of this. This is I don't know what to expect truly. Well, next week, the conclusion of Murder in the Glassroom. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. 
The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. <laughs> <laughs>